Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet this morning, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here in Elmwood. And as we come to this passage, as we do uh, each week as we come to the Bible, I want to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Lord, as we do here each Sunday, we come before you and we desire to come in a spirit of humility to submit ourselves to the good word that you have given us in the Bible. God, we're grateful for the ways that you have revealed yourself to us, not only in the written word, but also in the living word, Jesus. And we pray that you would teach us today. We ask Holy Spirit that you would be at work among us with us right now in this moment in a unique and special way as we're gathered together as your church. God, we pray that you, in the power of your spirit, would change us, would transform us, that you would help us to see Jesus, and that you would give us hope in your discipline. Be with us now, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Children have a unique kind of access to their parents. One of the most uh, beautiful reflections of this can be seen in this image. It was of John F. Kennedy Jr., who is a small child playing under the desk in the Oval Office while his father, John F. Kennedy, was president of the United States. I love this picture because It paints just this beautiful image, this beautiful contrast of arguably the most powerful person in the world at the time and a child who is powerless and totally dependent upon his father and upon his parents for everything. This photo shows a small child who has a kind of access to his father that other grown men and women simply don't have. There are many, many more people than this child who are more culturally or politically powerful, and yet they cannot come into that office unless they are invited to come in, and yet this child has a kind of access to his father that other people simply don't have, and this picture just beautifully captures that. This is something that we have all seen or experienced in different ways in our life. If you are a parent yourself, you know this, that your children have a special kind of access to you. Your children are the only ones who can wake you up in the middle of the night after they've had a scary dream and do so without the fear of getting you in trouble. Even if your spouse wakes you up in the middle of the night, you want to reach over and slap them half the time, right? You know, Uh, but there's a special kind of access that your children have. And if we're like ever traveling together, don't wake me up and tell me that you've had a scary dream and asked to cuddle because the answer is no, right? (laughs) That is, uh, my children are the only ones who have that kind of access to me, and and the same thing is true of you as well, right? Uh, That access does not extend beyond your children. Even if you're here today and you don't have children of your own, you know this because there was a time in your life where you can maybe remember having that kind of access to your mom or dad, waking them up in the middle of the night. Or, you know, you're in a place and you're sitting on mom or dad's lap, and there's an access you have to your parents that other kids simply or other people simply don't have. The point is that children have a unique kind of access to their parents 
And what we're going to see this morning is that the same exact thing is true of us as children of God, who is our heavenly father. We've been in a series of messages where we are looking at our identity in Christ. And so we've been looking at how we are sons and daughters of God. We are brothers and sisters of one another, a part of this new family called the church. And we are neighbors and witnesses who are commissioned and sent out into the world to announce the good news about Jesus. So we are sons and daughters. We are brothers and sisters. We are neighbors and witnesses. And as we looked at last week, we saw that as children of God, because God has lavished his love on us and has made us his children, that gives us a kind of identity, a new status that we are sons and daughters of God, and that new status comes with a full access to God as our Heavenly Father. And so that's one of the beautiful aspects of this image of we are God's children. But we're going to look at a different aspect of our relationship to God as our Father this morning, and that is one that may seem on the surface a little bit less pleasant than just being like, we're sons and daughters of God, yes. This morning we get to think about God's discipline. We know that this is the main point of the passage because even just in the verses that you heard read, the word discipline is used 10 times. Okay, in the ancient world, you couldn't like highlight a piece of text and click bold or italicize or underline or all caps, whatever. You got your point across through repetition. You got your point across through repeating the same word over and over and over again. And so we know that this is the main sort of emphasis of this passage. And as we think about God's discipline this morning, I want to suggest something that may sound crazy to you, and it's this. God's discipline is a gift. God's discipline of us as his children is a gift. And as we look at these verses uh, before us today, we're going to see three reasons why we can receive God's discipline as a gift. So three reasons we can receive God's discipline as a gift. The first reason is this, he di- his discipline proves we are, in fact, his children. God's discipline demonstrates, it proves that we are his children. We see this in verse 7, where the writer of Hebrews says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. So God disciplines us, and that discipline comes to us in the form of hardship. This is one of the main themes that runs throughout this section of the letter to the Hebrews. And I think it'd be worth our time to just take just a few minutes and sort of trace that theme because it's so important for us understanding uh, how God's discipline comes to us in the form of hardship. So listen as I read. I'm just going to read a few short passages for you that sort of give us, uh, sort of bring us into the world of the writer of Hebrews. So in chapter 10, Starting in verse 32, the author says this, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possessions. So he's saying, guys, I know that you're suffering. You're enduring strong opposition, public insult and accusation for your faith in Jesus. Your property is being taken from you. It's being confiscated. You're experiencing hardship and opposition. Then in chapter 11, he goes and he tells this, he gives this long history of God's people as they have lived by faith throughout the generations. 
And he talks about these, you know, people from Abraham to Isaac to Moses to David to, you know, all, all throughout the history of God's people. And he summarizes at the end of chapter 11 by, again, emphasizing this idea of hardship and suffering. He says in verse 35, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. So he says, I know that you were experiencing hardship and opposition. And you should not be surprised by that because this is what God's people have been experiencing for generations. And what they experienced before you is even worse than what you're experiencing. You got your property confiscated. They were sawed in two, (laughs) right? You're publicly insulted. They were murdered and executed for their allegiance to God. And so we see this picture of of, uh, the suffering of God's people. And then at the beginning of chapter 12, the author says, Therefore, fix your eyes on Jesus who endured such hardship and opposition. So he says, Jesus endured the the same kind of opposition, the same kind of hardship that you yourselves are even experiencing in that time. So they are experiencing hardship. They're experiencing difficulty and suffering. And what the writer of Hebrews does is he writes in part to encourage them. He writes to encourage them saying, what you are experiencing as you experience hardship, that is God's discipline for you. Now, I think it's important that we uh, sort of take a moment and recognize what the writer of Hebrews does not do, okay? He does not say, he does not connect God's discipline to specific, like, sinful things that the people did, okay? He doesn't put himself, like, in the mind of God and say, well, you know what? You, You did lie, so that's why your property was confiscated. You know, you did cheat on your taxes, so maybe that's why it happened, Right? He doesn't, and we shouldn't either, put ourselves in the place of God and try and figure out, like, okay, if I'm experiencing this, like, is this God, is this God punishing me? No, that's not at all what the writer is doing. He's talking about hardship as a form of God's discipline, but he doesn't connect it to those specific actions or activities that we would do that are wrong. And yes, God needs to work things out of us, right? Yes, there are aspects of our life that in God's discipline, uh, the, the rough edges will be rounded off. And the the ways that our lives are not in conformity with how God has designed us, those things will be brought into conformity. But he doesn't make the specific connection to, well, here's why you're experiencing this hardship. He simply lays it out there that as you experience hardship, you can receive this as God's loving discipline for you. And the point is that as counterintuitive as it may seem, God's discipline is not a sign of his anger. It's a sign of his favor. That's what the writer says in verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone who undergoes, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. So he's saying God's discipline of you, the difficulty and the hard things that he brings into your life as a form of discipline, those are not, an, those are not evidence that God is mad at you. Those are not evidence that God is punishing you. That's evidence of God's love for you. His discipline is evidence of his love and his favor. 
And he says, all good parents care enough to discipline their children. All good parents care enough about their kids to discipline them. Now, we may look back in life and say, you know, the way that my parents disciplined me, I can see ways that that is like, you know, it wasn't very helpful. Let's just put it that way, right? We can, we can maybe identify that in, in our lives or in our families, but the reality is that our, like, our parents disciplined us and they did the best they could. And all good parents care to discipline their children. If your parents don't even attempt to discipline you, it reveals something almost worse than hatred. It reveals indifference. And it, a parent who looks at their child and sees their behavior and knows if this child continues to live this way, and if they continue to um, grow these kinds of actions and attitudes and motives in their life, it's going to ruin them. The person that can look at their child and see that and not care enough about them to discipline them reveals that they essentially hate their child. God disciplines us not as an act of his judgment. He does so as an act of his love and his mercy. He does so because we have his favor. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He quotes from the book of Proverbs, which says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose hearts when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his son. When we experience the discipline of God in the form of hardship and opposition and suffering in our lives, it proves and it reveals that he is treating us as his children. God is not indifferent towards us. He's not indifferent towards us. Rather, his discipline, it proves the magnitude of his love for us. It proves that we are indeed his children and that he loves us and he cares about us enough to discipline us and that reveals his heart and his love for us. So this is the first reason why we can receive discipline as a gift, because his discipline proves that we are his children. The second reason we can receive his discipline as a gift is that he knows how to discipline us for our good. He knows how to discipline us for our good. Verse 9 says, Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. So what the writer here is doing is he's drawing upon a common experience we have of being disciplined by our parents. All of us have experienced that. And he makes this sort of proverbial statement uh, meaning that this is like generally true, but not in every single case that is out there, okay? And, and the proverbial true, true thing that he says is this, the older you get, the more you respect your parents. The older you get, the more you respect your parents. Meaning, as we gain more life experience, we see our parents' discipline from a different perspective, right? As, as, as youngins, we very much dislike our parents' discipline, Okay, students, that's your chance to say amen, right? <laughs> we very much dislike our parents' discipline. But then as we get older, and especially as we have our own children, we begin to see our parents' discipline of us from a different perspective. Because at the time, we may be thinking, like, my parents don't know anything. They're so clueless. It's like they were just born yesterday. My parents don't know anything. My parents are too harsh. You know, and we have all these, like, 
really, you know, bad <laughs> feelings towards our parents' discipline as, as children. And then you grow up and you all of a sudden start to realize, oh, it's not because my parents were trying to be mean to me. It's not because my parents were trying to make my life miserable. My parents disciplined me because my parents loved me. And so you begin to have a little bit of empathy for your parents, even if you maybe disagree with the way they disciplined you. You can have a little bit of empathy knowing that they did this in all likelihood for my good, not to be mean to me. And then he adds in verse 10, he says, They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Our earthly parents disciplined us as they thought best. And again, you may disagree with how they disciplined you, but to give your parents the benefit of the doubt that they did the best they could, you know, all of their life history formed them into the person they were, which formed them into the kind of the parent that they were, right? And so we can just assume the best that my parents did the best they could. They tried, they did the best they could, okay? The same thing is true of us if you're here today and you're a parent. We do our best to discipline our kids, but our perspective is always limited, right? There's the aspect of like, your kids have different personalities. And so your kids receive correction differently. And then there's like your own emotions. And sometimes, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, probably not, but like your emotions cause you to discipline in a way that you look back on, you're like, yeah, I'm not proud of that. If I could do it again, I wouldn't have disciplined him like that. It's because, you know, I had big emotions and my kid paid the price for it. So like all of our discipline and our experience of discipline is like kind of a mixed bag of like, we're doing the best we can and yet we're not perfect. We don't always discipline exactly as we should, but we're doing our best. But what the writer here says is that God always disciplines us for our good. He's not contrasting God's motives and your parents' motives saying God disciplines you for good, but your parents disciplined you for evil. He's not saying that. He's saying God does not discipline us with the same limitations that our earthly parents discipline us with. There is no like God doing the best he can, trying to make the best of a bad situation. No, God doesn't just try to do the best he can. He knows exactly how to discipline each one of us exactly as we need to be disciplined. And so what that means is that every hardship we experience, every single hardship, every source of opposition or suffering or difficulty in our lives that's given to us by God as a gift, as his discipline, every single one of those difficult, hardship-type things we face has a purpose. Every single one of those has a purpose. In his all-knowing, all-good, sovereign goodness, God has brought those things into your life, or God has allowed those things into your life, however you want to say it. God has brought those things into your life, and in a way, they are a tailor-made kind of discipline just for you. And that can be hard to receive. It can be hard to, uh, to, to sit with that. But there is no such thing, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, there is no such thing as purposeless hardship. There is no such thing as purposeless suffering or difficulty or opposition because God himself is the one who knows how to discipline you for your good. And he doesn't have to guess. He knows exactly what you need 
And he loves you enough to bring that discipline into your life. As his sons and daughters, this text tells us God is utterly committed to our holiness. That's the, that's the end result, right? God is committed to our good. And it says in verse 10, our earthly parents disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that, so that for the purpose that we may share in his holiness. God's desire is that through his discipline, which comes into our life in the form of hardship, his desire is that we would grow in holiness. That our lives would be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And that all of the things about us, our thoughts and our motives and our actions and our behaviors, all of the things that are out of alignment with how God has designed us to be, his heart in bringing discipline is that those things would be burned away through his discipline. And he brings that discipline into our lives so that we can be more and more conformed into the image of his son. He loves you enough to let difficult things come into your life, not because he takes some twisted form of pleasure in watching you suffer, but because that's the way that he is bringing about fruitfulness in your life. And we see in verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful, which is like, understatement of all understatements, right? (laughs) No discipline seems pleasant at the time. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And that, that language of training is athletic imagery, right? In the same way that you would like train for a marathon, in the same way that you would do weight training and lift weight, like it's a process. You grow in this. And he's saying, if you are trained by it, the hardship and the difficulty that comes into your life will bring about a kind of fruitfulness that you can't even fathom. And if you are not trained by it, it will lead to bitterness and resentment and not just questions, but questioning of God. Why have you brought this into my life? God, where are you? What are you doing? Not in a bringing it to God, like processing it in his presence kind of a way, but in an accusatory type of way. God, why did you bring this into my life? Do you even know what you're doing? But he says, God brings these things into our life to discipline us. And the end result of that discipline, when we're trained by it, is that we grow in holiness. We grow in righteousness and peace. And we are more and more conformed into the image of Jesus. And so this is why we can receive his discipline as a gift. Because his discipline is a sign of his favor in your life. His discipline, it proves that we're his children. He knows how to discipline us for our good. And the third reason we can receive discipline as a gift is that he endured hardship for us. He endured hardship for us. In chapter 11, as we mentioned a few moments ago, we read about the faith of God's people that they had throughout the generations and how many of them suffered and were even killed and died because of their allegiance to Yahweh. And then in chapter 12, it begins with these verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So part of the image is like a stadium. And there's all the people in the stands are like, they're like witnesses to what's happening on the field. And he's saying all these people throughout the generations are like witnesses. They're watching and observing you in the midst of your, your suffering and trials. But it's not only that they're like, you know, just passive spectators. They're witnessing is that they, are, that they can witness to the fact that it was worth it. 
They gave up their lives. They were sawed in two. They were persecuted harshly. They never received the full end result of what God promised them, but they trusted him and they lived by faith. And they would tell you today, they would witness to the fact that it was worth it. It was worth it to be in relationship with God and lose my life. It was worth it for me to possess God and to lose my possessions. And so they're witnessing to this good news. It says, therefore, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So there's a picture of not only did he suffer, he was raised on the third day and he ascended to the right hand of the father. He's victorious over sin. He's victorious over death. And then he says in verse three, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the way in, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of God's discipline, the way that we maintain some sort of balance and some sort of buoyancy in life is we consider him. We look to Jesus. He says, fix your eyes on him. Consider him. Think about him. Look to Jesus and see that he endured hardship and he did so for you. What this means when we look at the cross is this. We can know for certain that he knows and that he understands. What an encouragement to those who received this first letter, who were suffering, who were opposed. What an encouragement to us when we experience difficulty and opposition and hardship to know that what the cross proves is that God knows and understands exactly what we're experiencing. God himself knows what it's like to experience hardship. God does not discipline you. His discipline is not, doesn't push you away. His discipline draws you near. When you experience hardship, it's not God pushing you away. It's not God distancing himself from you. It is God drawing you near. Because we have a suffering servant. Jesus came he endured hardship for us, the same kind of hardship that we experience. And then he gave his life for ours. He knows what it means to suffer. And so because he's our suffering servant, what it means is that whenever we experience suffering, whenever we experience hardship, what it means is that that is an opportunity that God has provided for us to commune with our suffering servant. It's an opportunity for us to be in relationship with Jesus, our Savior, in a way that we could never be if we didn't suffer. So his discipline is not him pushing you away. It's not him judging you. Our sin has already been dealt with on the cross. So the discipline we receive, the discipline we experience, is not God punishing us for our sin. As if it's like, well, you told a lie, so therefore there's this punishment that's coming your way. No, our sin has already been dealt with. So the discipline that God brings into our life is not a punishment. It's not retribution. 
God is creating an environment where we get to experience communion with Jesus, who is our suffering servant. What a beautiful gift that is that God gives us. The cross proves that he knows. He understands what it's like to suffer. He understands what it's like to experience hardship and opposition. And the cross also proves he can take even the worst circumstances and make them turn out for our good. That's what the cross proves, is that Jesus, who was the sinless one, who was the only human who never deserved any of what he experienced, he experienced the injustice and the cruelty of the cross. And yet, that wasn't just like some ancillary, some like diversion from God's plan. Jesus' own suffering was the very means God used to bring about our deliverance. The suffering and the hardship that Jesus experienced was the very thing God used to accomplish our ultimate good. And so we have this, this picture, this beautiful example of like God has already proven that this is what kind of God he is. That he loves you and he will do whatever it takes to bring about your good and your flourishing. And his discipline is proof of that. The cross proves that he can take the most seemingly meaningless, ugly, horrific awful circumstances and make them turn out for our good. And so when we experience hardship, which is a form of God's discipline, we can receive that and say, I know that he can even take this in my life and make it turn out for good. Doesn't mean it's fun. Doesn't mean that we do it with a smile. Doesn't mean that we are weird about it or enjoy it. It means we can in the midst of the hardship, we can experience it with hope, knowing that God can take even this and make it turn out for our good. So this is why we can receive his discipline as a gift, because his discipline proves we are his children, because he knows how to discipline us for our good, and because he endured hardship for us. As we come to the communion table this morning, I wanted to submit a few um, questions to you, two questions. Uh, for you to spend some time with God sometime this week and just ponder these. The first question, what hardship has God brought into my life? For each one of us, there's going to be a different answer. What for one person is a almost unbearable hardship, for someone else, it doesn't feel like much. So our hardship, in a way, is our hardship is relative. But we can all identify areas in our life where we say, you know, this is, this is hard. This is a hardship that God has brought into my life. So just name that, own that. And the follow-up question is, what might he be using, how might he be using this for my holiness? All right, we know that that is the end goal. We know that that's how God has designed this discipline, is to bring about our holiness. So the question is not, well, what sin did I commit that God has brought this into my life? That's not the question. The question is, what is this hardship? How might God be using this for my holiness? Do I even believe that God can use this for my holiness and for my good? And ponder that and spend time asking God. If you don't know, if you don't know the answer to that, just ask him, God, what are you doing in this in my life? How do you want this to bring about fruitfulness and holiness in my life? How do you want this to be an opportunity for me to commune with Jesus, who's my suffering servant? If you don't know the answer, ask God. I encourage you to spend time, sometime this week pondering these questions. 
But now we get to come to the communion table as we do each week, and we get to remember and celebrate the good news of the gospel, which is that Jesus took on human flesh, and he endured hardship for us. His body was broken, his blood was shed, and as we come forward and receive the communion elements this morning, this is a weekly tangible reminder of the lengths to which God will go to accomplish our good. It's a weekly reminder of the fact that God can take even the worst circumstances and make them turn out for our good. It's a weekly reminder that God loves us and that his discipline in our life is not meant as a kind of punitive judgment, but is meant as a gift of his love and his favor in our life, if we have eyes to see it. And so we get to come to the communion table today and remember and celebrate who Christ is and what he's done for us. As we do each week, we're going to take just a few moments of silence. Maybe there's something you need to uh, spend a little bit of time thinking about or processing before we come to the table. Maybe there's some specific things in your life that you need to take before God in confession. And so we want to leave just a few moments of silence for confession and reflection, and then we will come together and celebrate Christ at the table.